0: week, we are finishing up a series called Run to Win. We've been in it from the beginning, and uh, we've been taking a look at First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, uh, and talking about living on purpose. Most everyone has a New Year's resolution. However, 80% never make it to February. 80%. So we said, hey, what does it look like to live in the 20% and to accomplish some things and to live our life on purpose? Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, letting them know, hey, I've been called to preach this gospel, and this is what my life is dedicated to. This is why I do what I do. He said, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Paul says, hey, everybody runs in a race. What's the race? It's our life. We get one life. So we might as well live life on purpose. We might as well run to win. So what we've been doing is asking some questions. The first week we said, what is my purpose? Starting with, why do I want to do what it is I want to do? Why do I want to have a better marriage? Why do I want to be a better parent? Why do I want to be a better employee? Looking at why, not what. Start with why. Last week we said, hey, what's my perspective? What's my perspective? How do I think? Because my perspective determines my path. My thoughts precede my actions. It's so important that you have the mind of Christ. This week what I want to talk about is what is your plan? What is your plan? A goal without a plan is just a wish. A goal without a plan is just a wish. How many of you be honest to say, I've been wishing a long time then? <laughs> how many of you are tired of just wishing? Right, a goal without a plan is just a wish. I, I don't really care how, how much you write your goals down. If you tape them on your wall, paint them on your wall, tattoo them on your hand, you're never going to accomplish those things without a plan. I think most goals are probably achievable, but we don't marry them with a plan to accomplish them. We just hope that they happen. And hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy, it's a plan. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. It's Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then bounce over and look at verses 2, 1 through 8. I want you to see in this passage how important planning is and what we can learn about God as it relates to planning. Now, Nehemiah, just a little background of this passage. Nehemiah is an Israelite living in captivity to the Babylonian Empire. Babylon had taken uh, into captivity Israel. They conquered them. They stripped them away from their homeland, and they made them live in Babylon. Nehemiah is part of a generation who has never lived in his homeland, but there has been a group of Israelites go back, and they rebuilt the temple. You have the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah right back to back. They were originally one book of the Bible that scholars split up. Ezra took a group of people back, and they rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah is waiting. He wants to hear news. What's going on in my homeland? And that's where the book of Nehemiah picks up. It says, In late autumn... Think about autumn. Keep it in your mind. In the month of Kislev, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears that the walls of the city, what protected the city, have been destroyed. They lay in ruin and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, this was their homeland. Jerusalem was the promised city, and he is waiting for news, and what he hears deeply, deeply affects him to the point where he mourns, he weeps, and he fasts over what he is going to do about what he has heard. Chapter 2 picks up with this. It so said, early in the following spring, in the month of Nissan, not the car dealership, but in the following spring, remember spring, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Here's what's important to understand about this. Nehemiah, he's a foreigner. He's a refugee. He serves as what's called the cupbearer to the king. King Artaxerxes is king of the Babylonian Empire, arguably the most powerful man in the known world at the time. Nehemiah's job is when they bring wine or they bring food to the king, Nehemiah has to take a drink first and he has to eat the food first. Why? Because if it's poison, he's going to die. So king, the king watches Nehemiah. If he dies, he says, no, I'm probably not going to drink or eat that. If Nehemiah doesn't twitch and he stays alive, he he eats it, drinks it. Now think about this. If you were king, you had a you had completely overthrown an entire nation of people, taken them out of their homeland, made them live where you live. Would you trust one of them to be your cupbearer? Probably not. But he trusts Nehemiah. Nehemiah has influence and trust with arguably the most powerful person in the known world at the time. Now, he said he was deeply afraid. Why? Because he was sad in the presence of the king. If you were sad in the king's presence, they could kill you. Because it's a a crime punishable by death to mess up the king's mojo. All right? If you're sad in the king's presence, he can kill you. So he found out in autumn. It is now spring, four to six months later, we'll say. And he says this, Then I was terrified, but I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king asked this amazing question well, how can I help you? Think about this for a moment. How many of you have ever watched Shark Tank? You should. Shark Tank, these people go in with a business idea and they pitch to these venture capitalists to get them to invest into their company. Nehemiah has a problem. The walls have been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. He's before the king. The king asks him, how can I help you? Now Nehemiah has the opportunity to pitch the VC, right, the venture capitalist, to get him to invest in his problem and help. Here's what Nehemiah says. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleased the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, well, how long will you be gone and when will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Think about this for a moment. He's before the king. King says, how can I help? And then the king says, how long are you going to be gone? And guess what? Nehemiah has an answer. Why? Because he planned. It started in autumn. Six months later, he brings before the king. It's spring. He mourned, he wept, he fasted, he prayed, and he planned. And it goes on. Not only does it tell me how long it's going to be gone, verse 7, he says, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So Nehemiah says, okay, I got to rebuild this wall. And he figures out what materials he needs. And he figures out, hey, I'm just a refugee. I'm just a captive. I'm not even really a human being on the same level as the Babylonians. So I need letters from the king, not just letters, but provision for these things. And the king of Babylon pays to rebuild the wall of the conquered city. Why? Obviously God's gracious hand was on him, but Nehemiah had a plan. He knew what he needed. He thought, he prayed, he planned, he fasted, he waited, and God made it happen. But Nehemiah had a plan. He didn't just say, oh God, fix the wall and wait. No, he went before the king, knew how long it would take him, knew what he needed, and he asked for it. So I have two questions basically today. What do we learn from this story and why should we plan? Why should we plan? The first answer that I have to that is because God is a planner. God is a planner. God did not just look at the world and say, hey, I'm going to create it. So there it is. That's what kind of we, we were maybe taught growing up. God said it was and it was. We believe that he created something out of nothing. Ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing came the world. But God just didn't go. He planned, he was intentional, he thought about it. Let me read to you a couple of passages of scripture talking about God planning, This, is both in Ephesians. First one, chapter one, verse three through six, Paul writing to the Ephesians, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We are united with Christ. Verse four, listen to this, even before, everybody say before. He made the world. God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. Even before God created light or anything, He had in mind you and I, and He chose us and He loved us. Before He created, He had a plan. God decided in advance. Everybody say in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure, so he praised God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. God did it before. God thought in advance. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned. Say, he planned for us long ago. Jeremiah 29.11, God says, For I know the plans... I have for you. God plans. God is intentional. Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. God looked ahead. God had intentionality. One of the best ways that we can see this is the universe, is creation. The order in creation. When God said, let there be light, and light in Hebrew is indicative of order, God said, let there be order. In the universe, he had a plan. Listen to this. How many of you have ever heard of a fractal? All right, there are more people in first service who heard of a fractal. You're more of my people here, all right? I came across fractals when I was reading a book about discipleship. Fractals are this let me read you this definition they're patterns that repeat at different scales. If you zoom in on a picture of a fractal, you will see the same pattern repeated. These patterns can be found in math equations, and they can also be found in the world around us, from snowflakes to the leaves on trees. Now, bring up this picture of the snowflake. Look at this. This is a picture of a snowflake zoomed in like a lot of times, okay? There's a hexagonal shape that starts from the beginning, and it repeats itself all the way out. That's a fractal. It's a a geometric shape that is repeated over and over again that makes a larger shape. And you can see this in nature, in leaves, and in trees, and the way that that ice forms. Think about this. A, A snowflake, a small, insignificant, little bitty snowflake, has geometric fractals baked into it. That God put so much intentionality in the universe that even a snowflake has design and purpose. And you can look at a leaf. You can do that. Go Google fractals for dummies. That's what I did so I could understand them better. And you'll see a lot of things there. The shape repeated over and over and over again. When a river forms, sometimes it creates fractals as it fragments off. God baked that into the universe. Another thing is the order and the fine-tuning of the universe. What do you mean? Did you know the fact that this universe could produce a planet where there could be life as you and I know it is a very infinitesimal Possibility. In fact, one scientist said it's 1 times 10 to the 229th power. What does that mean? A lot. That you take 1 times 10, and you have 229 zeros after it. One person said it's like this, the fact that life could be present on this universe, that, that, that our planet is, is tuned enough just so that life can happen, is like if a hurricane blew through a junkyard and assembled in perfect working order a Boeing 747 that could take off and take flight. That's the chance that life could be present on this universe, that their universe could create the environment for life to happen. Think about that. The intentionality behind the universe. Let me read you a couple things about this. One person said the finely tuned laws and constant of the universe are an example of specified complexity in nature. They are complex in that their values and settings are highly unlikely. They are specified in that they match the specific requirements needed for life. One scientist said this intelligent design, as one sees it from a scientific point of view, seems to be quite real. This is a very special universe. It's remarkable that it came out just this way. If the laws of physics weren't just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. The sun couldn't be here. The laws of gravity and nuclear laws and magnetic theory and quantum mechanics and so on have to be just the way they are for us to be here. That's not a pastor. That's a scientist. Whether their scientists are Christian or not, they recognize how just incredible this universe is it's like this it's like if a if there were to be this cosmic dial look at this up here this cosmic dial yeah right there like okay so this is the universal controller And God had these little bitty dials and he dialed everything in just as they need to be. That the variance, if it was here, the sun couldn't exist. If it was here, then we we wouldn't have hydrogen on the earth and, and we couldn't produce life. God dialed it in so specific and scientists have figured out what that specific measurement is. And it can't vary either way. Somebody, we believe God, created this universe and this planet so you and I could be here. Some of the constants that God God dialed in on that that controller is just the ratio of electrons to protons, the force of gravity, the expansion rate of the universe, the mass density of the universe, and the cosmological constant. Now, I'm not going to break those down because I don't even know what they all are. But that's how specific this universe is that you and I live the mere fact that we cannot only exist here, but that we can have conversation and we can love and we can reproduce and, and we, can, we have volition and we can make choices and we, can, we have happiness and sadness and all these things. It's not the product of time plus chance plus matter. It's the product of a loving God who had a plan and was intentional and understood what would need to be possible, not just for life biologically, but life spiritually and life emotionally and life psychologically. Think about that for a moment. The mere fact that we're here is arguably a miracle. A miracle. And you know what's great? God makes this comment in the Bible. He says, we are created in his image. If he is a planner, then you or I are a planner. And it has nothing to do with your personality. Some are more planners than others. I happen to be a person that doesn't like to start with a plan. I like to develop the plan as I go. Some of you can't take a step out of bed in the morning without your plan. Right? But don't tell me. Oh, I'm not really a planner. That's not how God wired me. Oh, take a look at the universe. You are a planned being. May have been unplanned by your parents, right? But you were not unplanned with the creator of the universe. There are no accidental children. There are only accidental parents. That's true. It's true, right? There's a plan and a purpose for your life. Think about that. God is a planner. And if we're created in his image, therefore, you and I are planners. Here's the second thing. God honors a plan. God honors a plan. We saw it in Nehemiah. God honored his plan. Let's look at this. Proverbs 16, verses 9. He said this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You notice the difference between way and steps? I heard this verse a lot, and I never really took time to think about way versus steps. Way versus steps. So, a man's heart plans. What does plan mean? In a scripture, it means to devise, to conceptualize, to think about it. You think about it. What's a way? A way is a direction or a waypoint, it's more broad and non specific. Where are we going on vacation? South. Why? Because it's warm. Where south? I don't know. Florida the Caribbean you know we're going south that's our waypoint what are the steps to get there he says a man a man plans his way but the lord directs his step direct means to establish to arrange prepare and provide and what are steps steps your pace your stride as you get there it's a more intimate it's a more moment by moment day by day Some of us aren't getting to where we want to go because we don't have a way to give God to direct our steps. I want my life to be better, God. (laughs) God says, what's your way? Where are you going? What, What do you want? What are you going to do? If your heart plans your way, It it thinks about it, it conceptualizes, it says, I want my life to go this way. I think it's like inviting God into the intimacy of our lives where he begins to direct our steps, our moment by moment, our day to day, our week by week, month by month, year by year. Give God a way so he can direct your steps. Well, what if my way is wrong? He'll direct you to his way. But move. God is drawn to movement. Move. Hey, you know what? God never told David to build a temple. Look it up in Scripture. God never said, David, build me a temple. Scripture says that David had it in his heart to build a temple. Guess what God did? Funded it. Provided for it. Solomon finished it. David planned the way. God directed the steps. What's your way? Don't be afraid to give away. Establish it. I want to do this for the Lord. And go for it. And, and, well, what if he doesn't want me to? He'll stop you. I'd much rather go and God say stop than stay and God say go, go, go and live with regret. Get out there and do something. Well, I just don't know if it's what God wants me to do. You're never going to know unless you step. God directs your steps, not your way. Your steps. Uh, back in 2009, Lauren and I, we, we felt called, uh, or led, however you want to say it, to start a nonprofit and and change the world. What happened is, I was reading Isaiah 58, and he says, the reason we fast is to loose the chains of injustice, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, provide the poor one to a shelter. I'm like, Lauren, we are going to change the world. We had no money. Nobody in the world knew us. 26,500 kids a day are dying of starvation. 27 million slaves in hard labor and sex slaves exist around the world. Lauren, we are going to change the world. And so we we took some steps. We we established our way. Where are you gonna go? The world. That's what we're gonna do. And that's what we did. We went to the world and God brought us to a goat in Guatemala. the, the after we got through the fact that nobody was looking for us and we didn't have any money, literally. We came across an opportunity of this group going to Guatemala to build homes, and they said, Hey, we want to start buying goats. We don't have the funds. I said, How much is it? They said it's $75 a goat, but you need to buy two, a male and a female, so they can do their thing, so they can have more goats and make some money. And I said, We can do it. We didn't have any money, but I figured 150 was a start. And little by little God directed our steps and, and we sent somebody that we knew and paid for their trip, paid for their goats. We went back the next year and we built two houses. We went from $75 a goat to $2,500 a house, built two houses. The next year we went back, we built three houses. This started in 2011. Since 2011, we've built two to three houses every year, and we're going to go back and build even more houses. Now, I'm not saying that to say, woohoo, Josh and Lauren are amazing. I'm just saying that what I learned from that is you give God away, he directs your step, and you've got to be willing to follow the steps even if it's not what you thought it would be. Another cool thing with that is, my parents established a way for me back when I was in high school. They said, son, you're going to take two years of Spanish at least because it's supposed to help you in college. Okay. Then they said, son, your teacher told us that you were pretty good at Spanish, and you can take dual enrollment and get 10 credits of college credit. It's going to be way cheaper than if you do it in college. So you're doing it because it's cheaper. That's my dad, right? You're doing it. I don't care if you like it, son. You're doing it. So they put me in Spanish. I end up going to college and getting my degree in Spanish. I end up going on a missions trip when I'm set was sixteen to Mexico and using that Spanish and realizing, wow, there's a there's a there's a, a need for this. I end up developing a, a, a kind of a passion for the language and then then I go to Guatemala one year because we had we had gone from buying goats and building homes to wanting to help, through a partnership, wanting to build a, a community for widows that didn't have land for us to build homes but the land was expensive, and we go to Guatemala City. I go with this guy, and we, we are in Guatemala City, and we have a meeting with a senator of Guatemala, just like a senator in the U.S., and we're at this big, beautiful mall, you know, and in walks a senator with his, his security detail, and we're with the guy who picked us up, and we sit down at the table, and uh, the senator says, okay, where is our interpreter? And the guy who picked us up said, oh, don't worry about it. Josh speaks Spanish. I don't speak enough Spanish to feel comfortable to negotiate a meeting for you know it was like thirty something thousand dollars US money. I said, excuse me for a moment, I need I need to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> I went to the bathroom and I prayed. I prayed, I said, Father, help me in the name of Jesus. Every Spanish word I've ever been taught, every sentence construct, every irregular verb, everything, Lord, you gotta help me. And I went back out and we sat and we negotiated that meeting. And I never could have imagined that God could take a young kid from Jefferson County, Missouri, whose parents said, "The way is Spanish," and he could take your step from a goat to a congressman, a senator in Guatemala to provide for other people. Give God away. He'll direct your steps. Take a, take a, take a chance. See what happens. And I say all of that, to say this, as it says in, in Proverbs 16:3. He says, "Commit whatever you do to the Lord, and He will establish your plans." Whatever you're going to do, commit it to God. What do you want to do? Commit it to him. He'll establish your plans. He's not going to establish your emotions. He's not going to establish just your wishes. He's going to establish your plans. Yes, he renews your thoughts. He transforms your mind with his word. He does give you the desires of your heart, but I think he he puts desires in your heart that you will desire. Not like, God, I desire a Maserati, so you'll give it to me. But God, I desire what you desire. But he establishes your plans. Your plans. Why? Because here's the third thing. True faith makes a plan. True, authentic faith makes a plan. Faith without works is dead. Some people say, well, I don't need a plan because I got faith. What do you mean? I believe God. God's going to do it. Uh, Yeah, I I don't argue. I'm not arguing with you on a philosophical basis. God can. But all you've done is said, God, God's going to do it. But what, but what have you done? Have you put any legs to it? I prayed about it. Well, that's really good. But do you know where you're going to go? Did God bring you a goat? You know, did, what, Do you know how much it costs? Do you, do you know what it looks like to do what you're asking you to do? God can, but, but what way have you given God to do? Ne- Nehemiah had faith. He had faith that God could do it, but he knew how long it would take him. He knew how much wood he needed. He knew uh, that he needed letters. He knew what to. So why? Because he thought and he prayed and he fasted and he had a plan. Because faith leads to action. Faith leads to action, all the time. Faith will lead you to do something. God will direct your steps. See, you'll get enough faith where you've gathered information, you've addressed reality, and you've got enough. You know enough to have faith to take the next step. Because you're only ever going to be about eighty percent sure, really. You say, how do you know that? I I don't know. I just turned 34, so I feel a little smarter today than I did yesterday. (laughs) You're never going to be 100% on on big things. You're going to be enough. And that 20%, hey, I'm stepping in faith. God gives you enough, I take another step. Why? Because he's directing my steps. He's directing my steps. True faith makes a plan. Here's the thing. I heard this quote. I thought it was really good. Faith is not a synonym for disorder nor a substitute for planning. Faith is not a synonym for disorder nor a substitute for planning. Faith does not always equal crazy. Faith is not always spitting in the mud, putting on someone's eyes, and healing them. Yes, Jesus did that. He did it once. I have yet to be led to spit in the mud and rub it on somebody's eyes when they come to me saying, can you pray for my eyes? Now, if God asked me to do that, I would have to really know. And in faith, I would. Right? Sometimes we take what happened once in the Bible and we make it prescriptive rather than just descriptive. Does that make sense? The way that he did something is not more important than what he did. God is not always bound to a method, right? He can heal eyes. That's the point of the story, right? So true faith will make a plan, it says in Luke, Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost of it and see if you have enough money to complete it? That's Jesus. You want to you build something? You want to do something? Okay, how much does it cost? What, what are you up against? Can you do it? You know, I, I felt called to build houses in Guatemala, but I recognize I'm not a builder. But I know that I can get people who are builders to go and do it. I had to figure out it took 2,000 nails to build a house down there. And you have to get them at Home Depot. And you can't buy them in Guatemala. Right? And you can only put one, one box of nails in a suitcase because that's about the amount of weight that you're going to be able to take to Guatemala. Because if you don't, an overpound, over, overweight bag costs $200 and another separate bag just costs $35. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? It has everything because you figure it out. Those are the steps. Can you, can you accomplish it? Have you estimated the cost? You want a better family? How much is it going to cost you? You want to change? How much is it going to cost you? Everybody wants to change until so you've got to change, right? You want a better job? What do you got to do? Is it possible? You, you, want to, you want to read your Bible and pray every day and make that a priority? What do you have to change? Do you have to get up earlier? What, what, you, know, you want to lose weight? What, what do you got to do? I mean, just those things that, don't you love how practical Jesus is sometimes? Hey, have faith. Go for it. We want to change the world. Start with a goat, right? Change someone's world, you know? And go from there. So, God is a planner, He honors a plan, and true faith will always make a plan. Now, I wanted to leave you today with something really, really, really practical, which isn't always my strong suit, I'm more conceptual. You, you got this sheet, or at least someone attempted to hand it to you, and you walked past them and act like you didn't see them when you came in this morning. And uh, if you want one of these, you can get it out at the desk outside right by the cafe. This is, a, uh, this is a smart goal sheet. I wanted to give you something that you could begin to look at what you want to do. How many are familiar with smart goals? Okay, somebody may use them in the workplace, nothing new. I didn't, I didn't come up with it. It's just a guide for you. Okay? Someone took it and said, all right, we're going to make an acronym off of SMART, you know, some really detailed, action-oriented person, someone not like me, and said, all right, we're going to make them. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to think about something that you want to do. Maybe it's something you and your spouse want to do. If you're not married, it's what you want to do individually, your, your, your relationship, your finances, your, your whatever. What do you want to do? And I want you to work through this sheet. And you ask yourself some questions. If it's a goal, it says, it's got to be specific. What will you accomplish? I want to lose weight. That's not specific. How much weight do you want to lose? Five pounds? Ten pounds? It's got to be specific. I want to be a better employee. What does that mean? Right? Ask your boss. He'll tell you, or she'll tell you what it means. So the last one is measurable. What does measurable mean? How will you know when you've reached this goal? Right? How are you going to know? If it's weight loss, it's just easy to use. You know, then you can, track, you can track your measurement. Are you, are you succeeding? Okay, is it measurable? Uh, A, is it achievable? Is it actually something that you can do? Do you have the resources and the time and whatever it takes to do it? And if not, how are you going to do it? Is it achievable? Unachievable would be like, I want to lose 100 pounds by March 1st. <laughs> Unless you have the capacity to do that, it's probably not going to happen. I want to lose 10 pounds by March 1st. Okay? Do I have the ability to do that? Yes. Do I have the resources? Yes. Can I do it? It's, it's, it's achievable. R, relevant. Why is this goal significant to your life? Is it relevant? Going back to why. Why do you want to do it? Is it relevant? NT, is it timely? When will this goal be achieved? Not by the end of 2019. That's not timely. When are you going to do what you want to do? And you write it down. This is just a guide. This is—I'm not saying this is gospel. I'm not saying this is gonna—you know—like the best thing you've ever done. But it's just a practical way to start thinking through some of these things. Because here's one of the biggest reasons why we don't uh, write a goal down or be specific is because we don't want to fail, right? What if I fail? I'll just say this: It's not what what. It's when you will fail. But embrace it because failure is just a part of progress. You fail forward. That's why I think, hey, we're going to try it. And even if we try it and fail, it was worth it because we pushed the ball down the field a little farther. Don't you, wouldn't you rather try and fail than five years from now be like, yeah, I wanted to do that, but I didn't. And you're just full of regret. Like, you know, who cares if you fail? At least you tried. Who cares what other people say? Most people crying about it are people who didn't do anything. So just say, shut up. I tried and I failed. Work through that. Make copies of it. Do one for your family. Do one for your finances. Do one for your health. Do one for your job. Write them down. Make a plan because it's going to help you measure progress. Even if you don't lose 10 pounds by March 1st, but you lost seven, that's progress. Celebrate it, right? And just keep going and see what God does. See what God does. Because the thing about it is, give God away and he will direct your steps because God is attracted to movement. I truly believe that God is attracted to movement. And that's what I want you to do this year. I want you to get up and move. Paul said this, I run with purpose in every step. Every step. So 2019, and from here on beyond, we're just going to run to win, right? We're going to run win. We've got one life. All of our lives are different. Uh, different you know, time, sp- time spans, but we're going we're gonna to run to win. We're going to do something. We're going to ha- take some action. We're going to take some responsibility. We're going to submit to God, whatever we do in our ways, and we are going to see what he can do because ultimately we want to do what he wants us to do. But just like Nehemiah, give him a plan. Give him a plan. Don't hope that somebody will do something for you. And then when they say they will, you have no idea what you want them to do because hope's not a strategy. Right? Work like it depends on you, pray like it depends on God, and plan accordingly. I'm going to pray for you in a moment, but next week we start a brand new series called I Can't Even, and we're going to talk about uh, people who drive you nuts and, uh, and, and how to deal <laughs> and, and just, you, just but, but, but realize, you are probably driving someone else nuts, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back around uh, for that. We start that next week, and I would encourage you to come back for that, but let, let me pray for you. Would you stand up this morning? as we pray and, and prepare to uh, run to win. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that's here. We just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. I thank you, Holy Spirit, if anybody's here saying, you know what, I, I just I don't even know where to begin to start. My life seems to be in shambles. You handed me this smart goal sheet and I'm just, I'm just trying to make it to tomorrow. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just reveal Jesus to them and his sufficiency. Jesus is the ultimate expression of what it means for you, God, to be a planner. You planned for Jesus to come to this earth and to die for us and to save us from our sins. And Holy Spirit, would you make that alive to us today? If there's anything we can walk out of here today with, may we see that Jesus, you are specific, you are intentional, and you willingly gave your life for us. And may we live our lives with that understanding that we too, like Paul, will run with purpose in every step of our lives to accomplish what it is that we were created to do. Holy Spirit, would you also lead us uh, to, to get involved, to get to know people, to be in a relationship. Help us to prioritize that. And uh, keep us safe this week. Keep us warm. it's supposed to get cold. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd bless us. And I don't really know who to play, pray for for the Super Bowl. I don't like either of them. But uh, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.